As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! For many, the word sanatorium conjures dark images of the insane. Men and women, confined in straitjackets, locked away in isolation. Some screaming for freedom, while others silently dissociate from reality. But in the late 19th to early 20th century, admittance into such institutions ranged from those severely physically ill with diseases and afflictions from tuberculosis to epilepsy, as well as more mental and emotional concerns, such as manic hysteria or depression. Of course, there were also those who were brought in for reasons that are now considered truly bizarre. Such ailments as novel reading, laziness, and the all-encompassing woman troubles. With such a variety of assumed afflictions, it was not difficult to have a family member committed to a sanatorium. Unfortunately, for many of the people who entered such institutions, most would likely never again have the freedom they once experienced. For in the early 1900s, sanatoriums and asylums were places where people were left by their family and forgotten. Their problems, whether real or imagined, tucked away out of sight. It is this type of darkness that is infused in the decaying walls of Radford, Virginia's St. Albans Sanatorium, a hospital though built on a foundation based on the belief in healing, instead gave many of its patients more misery, pain, and suffering. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic.
The city of Radford, Virginia, was founded on land once inhabited by several Native American tribes, including the Powhatan, Cherokee, and Shawnee. The region's close proximity to the New River watershed and the bounties it provided made it the ideal location for these tribes to settle. Unfortunately, when the European colonists arrived to the area, they too wanted to settle in such an advantageous location. Colonial intrusion resulted in fierce competition and hostilities with the native tribes over resources and land. In 1737, Colonel James Patton, an Irish sea captain turned land speculator, was awarded a land grant by the governor of Virginia. Patton then used the territory to start a settlement which would become known as Draper's Meadow. By 1755, tension with the native tribes had escalated. It was a year into the French and Indian War, and the small settlement of about 20 people were living on the land also inhabited by the Shawnee tribe, who had allied with the French against the encroachment of the British and their colonists land that the Shawnee were ready to protect. So on one night, in July 1755, a group of Shawnee warriors slipped into Draper's Meadow, catching the settlers completely unprepared, and looted their property killing at least five of the men and setting fire to the buildings before fleeing with another five or six as their captives. It is said that the deaths were especially brutal. One account claiming an old man was decapitated and another, an infant girl, was bashed to death against a wall. As for the settlers, taken as captives, they were brought to the Shawnee village of Sanancio in nearby Kentucky to live among the tribe. One of the captives, Mary Draper Ingalls, was taken with her two children, Thomas, age four, and George, age two. But somehow, Mary managed to escape her captors and successfully made a slow trek by foot through the Appalachian Mountains to return to her home at Draper's Meadow. She walked alone for over 800 miles in 43 days. Unfortunately, her children did not make the journey with her. Mary's son Thomas and sister-in-law Another captive were eventually ransomed and freed, but the rest, including George, would eventually die in captivity. After this massacre, Draper's Meadow was abandoned, but the legacy of bloodshed on this land would continue a century later, when the territory became the site of a gruesome battle 
in the American Civil War. On May 9, 1864, the Battle of Cloyd's Mountain brought some of the most savage and severe fighting seen during the Civil War to this region of Virginia. As Union forces fought to destroy the last working railroad line that connected Tennessee and Virginia. The battle lasted just over an hour, mostly consisting of brutal hand-to-hand combat. And the number of forces involved in this battle was small, with 6,100 Union troops to 2,400 Confederate troops. But when the fighting was completed, there was a combined 1,226 dead, and the majority were Union soldiers. Yet the Battle of Cloyd's Mountain was in fact a Union victory. In addition to the hand-to-hand fighting, the Union Army had established its heavy artillery on a nearby ridge, safe from Confederate forces, where they were able to provide support and destroy Central Depot, the railway station of Radford, Virginia. The resulting destruction of the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad line severed the Confederacy from its last significant lifeline and connection to East Tennessee. Then, less than three decades later, the ridge upon which this Union artillery once sat, taking aim upon Radford, would become home to a school. Unfortunately, the tragedies of the past that had occurred here were far from over. In 1892, George Miles constructed and opened St. Albans, a private Lutheran school for high school-aged boys. His goal was to produce the next generation of Southern gentlemen who would be well-mannered, intelligent, and highly athletic. Miles recruited many young men of athletic ability, and as a result, St. Albans gained a reputation as formidable competitors. But this emphasis on athletics also earned the school a reputation among its own students for being overly rough and competitive, and that bullying was not only allowed, but encouraged among the student population. By 1903, attendance at St. Albans School had begun dropping, likely with the exit of its founder, George Miles. And by 1911, the school shut its doors. Although there were no official records to indicate as such, the school's tough reputation has left behind stories and rumors of homicides and suicides that occurred within its walls. But over the next century, this building would endure even more 
the buildings that once made up St. Albans School sat empty for several years until 1916, when Dr. John C. King purchased the property for $16,500. King was formerly the superintendent of the Southwest Lunatic Asylum and found himself frustrated by the institution's high failure rate and demeaning conditions in which the patients were kept. So he set out to create a new institution, which he hoped would one day become the nation's first top-notch psychiatric hospital, where patients would be both well-treated and well-accommodated. In addition to the renovations King made to the property, turning school into sanatorium, he added places that would allow patients to exercise and play. A brochure advertising St. Albans said it included diversional exercises and employment, vegetable and flower gardens, and an adequate dairy herd. The hospital also boasted a bowling alley in its basement. The St. Albans Sanatorium was open to the public on January 15, 1916, and on its first day in operation, four patients were admitted. St. Albans would see more than just psychiatric patients, as it was the only medical facility in the area. It would also serve as a general hospital, a morgue, and even as the nursing home for the city of Radford and its surroundings. Dr. King subscribed to the belief of moral management for a sanatorium, meaning that the use of cement cells and chains that were common in many psychiatric hospitals at the time were abandoned in favor of a more domestic living environment, including beds with sheets and windows with curtains. King believed that a comfortable living environment provided the counterbalance necessary for patients receiving both physically and emotionally painful treatments. If patients never had any comforts to enjoy, then they had no chance of ever recovering from their afflictions. Dr. John King may have had the best of intentions when he opened his new hospital. And yes, the standards of living may have in fact been better than those at other institutions of the time. But that did not stop St. Albans from becoming a place of horror, sorrow, and death. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together, through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. 
My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One of the most significant problems at St. Albans was the lack of proper staff. It was recorded that in 1945, there were a total of 6,509 patients to the paltry number of 48 hospital staff members. Even worse, of those staff members, only two were actually doctors. Furthermore, As with most early 20th century psychiatric hospitals, far too little was actually known about treating mental illness. So the patients of St. Albans were eventually subjected to cruel experimental treatments by doctors and staff, becoming human guinea pigs in their search for cures to these invisible ailments. The result were numerous patients ending up either permanently disabled or even killed by the effects of the very treatments meant to cure them. The most vicious of these treatments were hydrotherapy and electroshock. Hydrotherapy was thought to take advantage of the physical properties of water, such as its temperature and pressure for therapeutic purposes, and thus used to stimulate blood flow and theoretically treat the symptoms of certain diseases. During the early 20th century, hydrotherapy was incredibly popular and often used at many medical institutions in one of three different methods. First, were continuous warm baths given in rooms with little light or noise stimulation in the hope of treating insomnia and suicidal tendencies, as well as help calming those with agitated behavior. These baths might last anywhere from several hours 
to upwards of several days. Next were water packs, whereby sheets were dipped in various temperatures of water and wrapped tightly around the patient. The treatment would last for several hours before patients were unwrapped. But the most gruesome of these hydrotherapy cures were the water sprays, which functioned like showers, but utilized extremely cold water to treat manic depressive psychosis and patients who showed signs of overexcitement or increased motor activity. The belief was that the cold water would effectively slow blood flow to the brain, decreasing mental and physical activity. But the reality of hydrotherapy treatments was not pleasant for the patients involved. Continuous warm baths would often mean the inflicted were merely strapped into a steaming hot bath for days at a time, isolated and bound, and the treatment through water packs was much more akin to a live mummification in unbearably icy sheets. And as for the water sprays, there were reports that in most early 20th century facilities, it was less of a shower and more of a spraying down with a high-pressure hose. Just up the hall from the hydrotherapy rooms of St. Albans Sanatorium were those dedicated to electroshock therapy treatments. Today, electroshock therapy is likely the most recognizable of psychiatric treatments. Utilizing electricity as a way to shock or rewire the senses back into proper order. It was used heavily on those diagnosed with ailments like schizophrenia, but often the charge would merely induce seizures in patients. Seizures that falsely led doctors to believe were signs of the reduction of the supposed symptoms. Horrifically, this treatment was also carried out with the chemical aid of a drug called metazole, which patients often reported induced feelings of fear and dread, intensifying their original afflictions rather than curing them. Of course, there's no way to know how many of those diagnosed with schizophrenia actually had the disease, as in the early 1900s, this diagnosis seemed to cover a range of different mental psychoses. And far too often, many institutions use this brutal therapy just as much as a threat to stop patients from acting out aggressively and help keep the wards in order and under control. It was said that there was no peaceful death to be found at St. Albans Sanatorium, and in all likelihood, there was very little peace to be found in life as well. Patients, once admitted to the hospital, were poked, prodded, and experimented on. Often they were abused or neglected 
by an overworked and largely inexperienced staff that documentation suggests, given their occupation, were likely to suffer from severe depression themselves. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that a significant number of deaths at St. Albans are attributed to suicide. On the third floor of the main hospital building is a room now notably called the suicide bathroom. Documentation remains today, identifying at least four different deaths in this room. Although stories suggest that even more actually occurred. The Virginia newspaper, the Southwest Times, recorded the obituary of one victim of suicide the sanatorium. Mrs. Susan Jane Sayers died Saturday night at the St. Albans Sanitarium in Radford, where she had been under treatment. Her condition had been in extremis for some days, and the end not unexpected, it being realized there was no hope. But the exact number of deaths to occur within the walls of St. Albans Sanatorium is unknown. sanatorium remained open in some capacity until the 1990s. After its closure, like so many other psychiatric institutions, it was left to sit and deteriorate. By 2007, the building was set to be torn down, but the Radford Historical Society stepped in and registered the hospital as a local historical site. Since 2010, the community has been working to get the property listed in the National Register of Historic Places. And unfortunately, as of today, it has not yet made it onto the list. Eventually, the property was purchased by Tim Gregory, who in his childhood had been a patient at St. Albans and even experienced the terrifying electroshock therapy. Gregory has declared his intention to renovate the buildings and turn them into a, quote, research and enlightenment center, which would include the St. Albans Sanatorium Museum and renovated rooms for visitors brave enough to spend the night. And to fund these efforts, St. Albans now hosts assorted macabre and haunted events inviting ghost hunters to wander the facility, which is now widely considered one of the most haunted locations on the East Coast of the United States. Not long after the sanatorium closed its doors for good, began to gain notoriety as a hotspot for paranormal activity. Visitors have reported sightings of full-body apparitions and the old alcoholic's ward, and disembodied voices, screams, and footsteps heard throughout the building. Other guests claim to have seen objects move on their own or feel that they have been pushed by invisible forces. Some will even bring a toy to leave for the ghost of a young boy named Jacob, 
who is believed to have been murdered in the sanatorium by an orderly named Donald in the 1970s. The sounds of his childish laughter and light footsteps were said to echo throughout the building. But for those who wish to catch a glimpse of young Jacob, he can sometimes be found standing against the wall of the room belonging to his murderer. In addition, the hydrotherapy and electroshock rooms are of course the most active on the property. The rooms located just down the hall from each other are today nothing more than decaying shells of their former lives, with only the massive tubs remaining as monuments to the pain and trauma wrought there. Today, the physical condition inside St. Albans is a combination of both renovated and dilapidated. Graffiti stains the plaster walls. Broken wheelchairs and rusted gurneys still remain in the hallways and in the old operating rooms as relics of a traumatic past. And those who dare enter what is left of St. Albans often claim to feel a heaviness in the building, a feeling of torment and dread, echoes of tragedy and horror that occurred on that ridge in Radford, Virginia, where Native Americans once fought colonists, Northerners fought Southerners, and vicious medical treatments were perpetrated on the vulnerable in the name of science. Albans Sanatorium was built on the blood and sorrows that came before it. And that darkness only continued to grow with each new patient that walked through its doors. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed 
when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.